Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jelena Golubovic, and today I am talking with anthropologist Azra Hromadzic about her new book, which came out in 2015 from University of Pennsylvania Press. The title is Citizens of an Empty Nation, Youth and Statemaking in Postwar Bosnia-Herzegovina. So Azra, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, and um, uh, hello to all of your listeners. Uh, So this book is an ethnography that largely takes place inside a high school, in a reunified high school in Mostar. But it's also making much broader parallels between what's happening in the high school and what's happening in the state of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So by way of introduction, I'd love if you could help situate listeners in Mostar, sort of describe the city, and also in doing so, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to do research there. Wow, I hope you have enough time today for all these questions. <laughs> this is, this is, um, these are uh, truly broad and complicated questions because I, I am uh, myself from Bosnia. I grew up in a, so, in a socialist Yugoslavia and I never visited Mostar before uh, the war began. And the war started in 92 for those of your listeners who are maybe not that familiar with the region and lasted until 95 in Bosnia itself. So I, I grew up in a town of Bihać, which is one of six, uh, it was one of uh, the six UN uh, protected zones that's supposed to be protected from shelters. So I, I was 16 when war began and lived under siege for three and a half years. And in some ways, I like to uh, look back at that time, which is which was the time of uh, extreme suffering, but also uh, interesting ways in which joy and life uh, were uh, lived and consumed. Uh, I, I like to think about that time as uh, war catching me in the classroom uh, because I was in um, the uh, second grade of high school when the war began, and a lot of my war memories are linked to that classroom space. So I think even though I didn't think about the classroom and education, when I uh, became an anthropologist at the University of Pennsylvania, graduate student, and when I decided that I wanted to do uh, a dissertation research in the region, uh, I didn't think necessarily about the school. So I've, I'm not an anthropologist of education, but this uh, school in the city of Mostar ended up being uh, such an important and palpable metaphor for that which I was interested in. And the question I wanted to understand is how people live post-war humanitarian interventions. What does it mean to live um, in, a, in a space that uh, of state-making? Because we often hear about state-making and post-building policies, about diplomats, uh, so-called elite coming together around tables deciding this, but very rarely do we know what happens once these, once these things are implemented? How do people live something that, for example, in the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, is called consociational model of democracy, which means power sharing model? What does it mean in everyday life? 
to live constitutional model, model of democracy. So Mostar, which was before the war, uh, one of the most cosmopolitan, at least that's how it's remembered today, celebrated city, city that's extremely beautiful, the largest city in the southern part of the country called Herzegovina, was an, a very logical choice because this was the city that was, uni um, I, I shouldn't say united, we didn't think in those terms before the war, but city that was cosmopolitan, so-called mixed, um, with different ethnicities. Again, we didn't refer to groups as such before the war, but now speaking back to that time, I'm, I'm um, kind of remapping the field. Um, that people coexisted and uh, lived what they remember as a, a normal life, and normal life becomes very important in my book as well as an idea, as a, a not as a utopia, but as, as a sign of hope, not only in Bosnia but elsewhere. Um, so Mostar uh, was this uh, really almost magical uh, place before the war and then during the war, precisely, I think, and argue, because of the way in which it was intermixed, where ethnic groups coexisted for such a long time, it became the site of one of the biggest bloodsheds in the region. It was violently, extremely divided, uh, first between uh, Croats and, and uh, Bosniaks or Bosnian Muslims on the one side against the Yugoslav People's Army and then after the Yugoslav People's Army withdrew, then the fighting emerged between the, um, uh, the Croat Army and the Bosnian uh, Army, mostly populated by Bosniaks. And so during that time, Mostar emerged through the war and out of the war as a divided city. I am also carefully using that title. I think sometimes people use the idea of a divided city uh, to map uh, a little bit acontextually and ahistorically different parts of the world next to each other. So they talk about Belfast and Mostar and Nicosia in the same sentence. I think we have to be careful to, mm -hmm. to do that. But um, Mostar emerged as this kind of wounded place, but also place uh, filled with resilient, amazing people. So when I wanted to understand what does it mean to live um, peace-building, reunification model of state-building and democratization, Mostar ended up being the uh, logical choice. I didn't think about studying in the high school until I got there. I actually showed up in 2004 for the first time when the famous Mostar Bridge, the old bridge that was built by the Ottomans in the 16th century, that was destroyed then by the Croatian nationalists in 93, that was being rebuilt and reopened to, to public. And I realized that this bridge, it was celebrated by the internationals and some local people as a sign of reunification and rebuilding, really couldn't capture that uh, it couldn't capture the new world order in in this space um it in so many ways this symbol was empty of its former symbolism and i felt and understood that actually the master gymnasium a very unique school that was the first high school to be attempted to be reunified after the war be, um, where uh students from uh Croat side of Mostar, because Mostar ended up being divided during and after the war. Uh, uh, students from the Western or Croat side and students from the uh, Bosniak or Eastern side were for the first time brought together to study together. That at least was the goal. And the international community in uh, Bosnia, and especially in Mostar, understood that there was a lot of symbolism and there was a lot at stake in trying to integrate this 
a very famous school uh, academically and um, artistically uh, because the school is also a national monument. So I realized in that time during that first visit that I would have to study the school, but not only for the school's sake. Rather, I try to understand school as a metaphor for the state itself, where people are being uh, reunited through policies, international policies, as well as they could claim segregation also in the name of democracy building. So I wanted to look at that tension and what it meant for students on the ground. Yeah, I think it's really important how you you pointed out that, I mean, we speak of Mostad as a divided city, but it's not comparable to cities where the division is a literal wall where people are not allowed to move from one territory into another. And it, it's more of a social social boundaries that are drawn there. And what is very interesting in the case of Mostad is that instead of a wall, you have this bridge, which is physically uniting the two sides that got so much media attention internationally when it was being reconstructed. And yet the sort of real process of reunification is happening in this high school. Well, um, I, I do have to just make one uh, note about that in terms of the location of the bridge. So the bridge, this amazing, um, beautiful architectural wonder back then when it was built, and it was rebuilt in a beautiful fashion as well, is not actually connecting two physically divided sides, uh, ethnically divided sides of Mostar. The bridge now currently is a, a connecting two sides of Bosniak, Eastern side of the city. Thus, um, it, the, the, in that, in that way, um, the bridge was removed partially from that very symbolic space of, re, uh, of reunification, uh, because it, it physically, it's not, uh, sitting at the, uh, former front line. However, the Master Gymnasium is. The, the gymnasium is one of the very few buildings that was not destroyed, um, but that uh, that's situated at the main boulevard. This is the wide street that, divide, that divides East and West, Croat and Muslim uh, or Bosniak sides of Mostad, and which was the former front line. So the school in that way, also more so than the bridge, uh, represents um, this uh, space of both uh, unification and division, segregation and violence and reconciliation. So if we are going to look spatially, also the school is probably a much better choice for um, you know that kind of symbolism. So the bridge lost to some extent, not only in terms of representing this order that was no more, um, it lost also in terms of this kind of physical symbolism because it doesn't divide, it doesn't, uh, sorry, it doesn't uh, connect to divided sides of the city. Um, while uh, it's true that uh, Mostar is, uh, doesn't have such a physical division that some other so-called divided cities have, I was not necessarily concerned or implying these physical obstacles um, as main sources of division. I also think that in many of these cities, and I lived, for example, in Belfast, um, this division has such historical depth and salience that in Mossad, you, you could feel that the population that I was interacting with also lived, not coexisting, but intermixed before the war. So there is no this kind of depth of division, of historical division um, that you see in so many other places that are oftentimes um, coupled with Mostar and you know all of them are seen uniformly and compared without taking into account that people in Mostar have not been divided um, you know, for that long, actually. That this is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. 
they can talk about the fact that many of the youth who were born during and after the war don't remember that order, and that that's definitely a reality. But um, thinking about history of living together and commingling, Mostar was never a deeply divided city. So I think if we call it just that, we erase this long history of cohabitation, intermixing, intermingling with people. Yeah, you were mentioning earlier the sort of the language we use to talk about it now. We talk about ethnic groups and unified spaces. It's not language that was used before the war. It's not how people saw each other before the war. And yet you have this new generation, the high school students growing up where this is what's considered normal. Um, are they getting from their parents the history of of living in a cosmopolitan space and it being more mixed? Um, I think that that's a very important thing, and it does, it, it's not necessarily related to what I did in the book, but also some of the more recent visits to the uh, recent visits to the region that I done is that some of that collective history is being told, maybe not necessarily through again peoplehood notions of uh, people and ethnic groups or uh, nationhoods, and but rather in the language of let's say socialist worker and labor and uh, description of people going and working in factories that are no more. And I think that kind of and and you can tell in youth um, that are receiving this kind of message a certain kind of disconnect. They simply cannot imagine that kind of order. Um, they have been, as you mentioned, and I mentioned in the book, naturalized and habituated into this new order in which ethnic divisions become uh, a normal order of thing, naturalized. And um, so they, for them to understand, it's almost like we are talking about uh very long, long time ago, that um, that these uh, that, that people came together around, let's say, labor or building the country and building, literally building the state of Yugoslavia with their own hands. For older generations, Yugoslavia was not this artificial, uh, abstract idea. Many of them talk about sweating on its roads that they were building. For them, oftentimes when they tell these stories in youth lesson, they explain how many bridges they were working on building. And so there's that certain kind of tangibility to that order that for many youth today is a very abstract idea. But as I said, oftentimes these discussions come, I think, more powerfully through through language of socialism and post-socialism than the language of ethnic groups um, uh, in, in everyday conversations. So I would like to ask you a question uh, about this high school. So as you were saying, it's a high school that immediately after the war had been sort of turned into a Croat high school for, for the Croatian students, um, whereas before the war it had been mixed. And now there was a, a process to reunify it and bring the Bosniak students back into the high school. And this faced lots of obstacles, of course. And one of the obstacles that I've found most interesting your discussion of it was about language and the issue of how language was being politicized and what language should be spoken in the classroom with the students from the two different groups um and i know that language in the former yugoslavia is such a complicated topic but i'd love if you could explain a bit these language politics for the listeners and especially how they tied into this uh right to difference sure thank you for that um so 
if you correctly state that uh, during the war and uh, during the war, the school was emptied of students. It was simply too um, dangerous to attend it because it was, as I mentioned, it was on the front line. Uh, it was, however, on the Western or crowd dominated side of the boulevard, which means that after the war ended, the school emerged as on, on the Croat side of the divided city. And therefore, uh, the students who were attending the school for the first couple of years after the war were uh, most almost exclusively Croat students and few Muslim students who stayed in the Croat side during the war. With the heavy pressure of the international community and the Bosniak leadership, uh, negotiations for the reunification uh, began and a lot of money uh, was invested in this project. And the political leaders, because this is always a political issue, um, in, in the region came around the table and tried to uh, figure out what this integration of the school should look like. And discussion of integration school revealed uh, the biggest tension at the heart of the Dayton Peace Agreement, which, which brought um, which brought peace to Bosnia. Uh, it's supposed to be a temporary agreement. It ended up being a permanent, um, a permanent Thing that the people in the region have to live with. But what that agreement actually said is that uh, the international community and the leadership should attempt to reunify the country, to create a supra-ethnic type of policies and um, uh, sense of belonging, at the same time uh, as preserving a right to difference understood as ethno-political and cultural difference. And the core of that understanding of cultural right is the notion of language. Well, that would be all fine if the language was not actually one language, grammatically speaking. All um, majority of linguists and experts um, on, uh, on the language agree that what's now three divided languages and what was before the war, one language called Serbo-Croatian, and now we have, have Serbian-Croatian and Bosnian languages, is actually one language. However, politically, and this was inscribed in the Dayton Peace Agreement, these are three different languages. And youth and their parents have right to educate themselves and their children uh, in their own ethno-national language. So when it came to the reunification of the school, the international community and the Bosnian political leadership was pushing for common classrooms. However, the Croatian leadership was very resistant to that, fearing that that would somehow uh, threaten the purity of creation instru language instruction in the school. Um, I just want to remind your readers, those who don't know about the language difference, these are basically the variants of language. Yes, you can recognize according to vocabulary and some regionalism or, or dialects and some uh, variants you can tell pretty much who is from where, and there are some um, visible differences. However, they never abstract uh, communication and understanding. So the, there was no reason in terms of understanding why these students shouldn't be together. That was the stance of the international community. However, the, in the, for the Croatian uh, political leadership and for the majority, actually, of the Croat community in Mossad, issues were not the issues of language per se, but issues of nationhood and peoplehood. And they saw uh, creation language and spirit and preservation as, as the core issue in exercising their life uh, right for self-determination and self-autonomy uh, that was given to them in Dayton. So they basically used that right to turn Dayton on its head and say, hey, that would be undemocratic. 
to push for integration. So um, at the end, the compromise was that the school was unified, but only to a certain extent. So what was unified was there was one principal, the management of the school was unified. So there was one principal, one, one, one uh, vice principal, there was one secretary and one person in charge of the budget. However, the students attended different national, ethno-national curricula. So Bosniak students went to one classroom and Croat students went to another classroom. Where it became extremely interesting in this school that's supposed to not have any ethnic markers that had a clear message that ethnicity is something that has to be to some extent um, uh, overcome in, in the name of unification, uh, this kind of specialization of classrooms, when a, a Croat classroom would be next to a Bosnian classroom, then again Croat classroom, then Bosnian classroom, that in a, in a sense uh, was almost meta-ethical, uh, ethnic. What I mean is it's kind of reproduced and cemented ethnic division. So you didn't have to tell anyone who you were. You just needed to go to your classroom where you would get instruction in your language regardless of the fact that everyone understood each other. So the only place where the international community and um, the leadership of the school that's also that was appointed by the political parties, nationalist political parties, the same ones that started the war, so it had same, the same politics, the only place where this broke down was actually in the school bathroom where all students mm-hmm. would come together and smoke together, um, and they didn't use bathroom for pretty much anything. Uh, for what bathroom was intended for. Um, rather, they came together and formed certain kind of body politic and they would talk together, talk to each other, teach each other about certain kinds of differences, which to me signaled how much apart they became because their questions would never be the questions that I would ask of my friends who were Croats or, or Serbs um, because I'm a Bosnian Muslim that, um, you know, some 25 years ago. So, uh, the questions were genuine and they wanted to learn about each other. So they came, and even those, of, uh, so they came primarily to the bathroom for smoking that's illicit in the building, but everyone knew they were doing it. So they would come together, boys and girls together. This was a unisex bathroom because the um, school was still being rebuilt. And they, um, they smoked together for those 20 minutes of recess and learned about, um, certain kinds of religious practices. They learned about curriculum. They, they flirted, um, for a while, but there were, there were also rules about how long you're supposed to flirt with somebody from the other, uh, from the other, uh, side. That's how they called people from uh, other ethnic groups, the other side or other curriculum. That ended up being the code. Um, so it was this bathroom actually that for me was the most illuminating. As an anthropologist, I never, envisioned that I would end up in a bathroom and no one taught me how to do ethnography of the bathroom. Do you take a picture? Do you smoke with them? What do you do? So it took me a while to figure it out, but um, it was the most illuminating space. I don't want to romanticize it. Not, I don't think that this space in which they came together without everyone trying to bring them together, that they changed structural divisions. Uh, they didn't, but something did shift in their uh, personal sub- subjective political subjectivities and their awareness and i i could always tell that these students who went to the school who went to smoke to the bathroom together had a slightly different cultural and social sensibility than students who still went to segregated schools i i went back in 2012 and i still claim that that something did shift in these students due to that experience so even though 
no major restructuring of the space um, happened. This bathroom did achieve something. I don't want to romanticize it, but I think it's important. Um, and the, the, this bathroom also, what it, so from this school bathroom, I criticized or critiqued the model of democracy that allows um, for this kind of intera- meaningful interaction only to take place in these smelly, smoky school bathrooms. Because er- mm. as, as soon as they would leave the school, they would go to it to their side because there was no other public space because bathroom was both public and private kind of. Um, there was no other space where they could be together uh, because the, all the other heterogeneous, um, meaning um, so-called mixed public spaces, except for one or two in the city, were suffocated. Uh, through this new kind of form of mapping where everything had to be ethnicized. Um, so the bathroom ended up being very symbolic and very important for my argument that power sharing model and the model which envisions certain kind of construction of common uh, peoplehood and statehood ended up actually producing ethnicized youth detached from their state. I was so fascinated by the chapter on the bathroom and all the the politics that happened in the bathroom. And uh, you had explained also that there was sort of this tacit agreement between the students that nobody would use the bathroom as a bathroom during lunch hour. You would use it as a bathroom. You'd have to leave class to go use the <laughs> toilet. But if you, if you used it at lunch hour during socializing, it was very much frowned upon. It's just so, so fascinating, all the politics that happened there. Um, I'd love if you could chat a little bit more about, you mentioned that there's flirtations that go on in the bathroom, but that there's sort of rules around how long they can last or uh, where they can happen. I'd love if you chat a bit more about that. So, yeah, thank you for that question. I um, I wrote a separate article that was published after the book about flirtation and romantic engagement among these students. Uh, but I also have a chapter in the book called Invisible Citizens. And this uh, chapter looks at so-called mixed marriages and children from these mixed marriages. I have to say that I am a little bit, even though mixing is a, is a uh, very common uh, verb in uh, Bosnia and people talk about mixed marriages, I'm always hesitant, especially analytically, to use it just because mixing assumes that things that or people that come into mixing are coming as somehow pure or homogenous, but you know, there's hybridity all the way around. So, um, I don't want to suggest that to your readers, but I'll use it just because people use it a lot. So mixed marriages were relatively common, um, and the Yugoslav, during the Yugoslav times, because it fit, uh, they fit into kind of Tito's, uh, Tito, the former, uh, the, the head of the uh, Yugoslav state, it fit into his idea of brotherhood and unity and people coexisting. And he didn't have a clear policy. Um, on mixed marriages, but they were not discouraged, um, as they sometimes were prior to Tito's regime in the region. Um, they were not that commonly practiced. But during the urbanization time, modernization in Yugoslavia and cosmopolitan kind of awakening, there were also many people who ended up crossing these now called ethnic ba- uh, boundaries and intermarrying. However, in this post-war order, and this post-war order assumes, and this is the truth, uh, true about ethno-nationalists who started the war, as well as the international community that that has the same kind of vision of Bosnian people and territory, there is an assumption that ethnically conceived people 
belong to ethnic territories. So the country is constructed uh, as a mosaic of ethnic pieces. So everyone belongs to their own, uh, they're rooted. People, ethnic people are rooted in ethnic territories. Well, you can see if you have that kind of ethnicization of territory, and again, this is new to Bosnia, even though so many different groups coexisted historically in the region because the region was occupied by so many different powers and people did intermingle for a long time, there was never territorial segregation of this time. So ethno-nationalist vision is the vision of ethnic people rooted in ethnic territory, and interestingly, international community takes on and adopts that kind of vision. Um, and they, even though they, their goal is different, they reproduce this idea of very crude multiculturalism. What that does, it doesn't leave any space for people who don't belong to these categories. It, before uh, the war in, in, uh, in Bosnia, you had um, and, and, uh, people and uh, you had also uh, smaller groups that were recognized. You had almost 30 different nationalities. You had nations, the main nations that existed, six main nations in Yugoslavia, and then you had nationalities, up to 30 of them. After the war, that palette of difference is erased, and you have only four categories. You can be Serb, Croat, Muslim, or other. Many people who were mixed, uh, of mixed marriage, or their children, who's, who used to see themselves as Yugoslav, suddenly found themselves totally invisible, unmappable. They didn't have place they belonged to because all places were ethnicized. So in one instance, one student said, I'm, I can only go into the river uh, in Mostar. I, I, I don't belong to this side or that side. So in given that kind of uh, squeezing out of, of mixing, right, of hybridity from these ethnically conceived uh, places populated by ethnic people, there was a lot of discouragement uh, from parents, from uh, school, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, uh, about uh, romantic engagement and flirtation across ethnic groups because people would say, where, where, where will you live? If you do fall in love with him or her and you end up getting married, where will you go? So there was a lot of discouragement and people would say that they are not being... Um, uh, one person said, I'm not being discriminating. I, I just want the best for them. I don't want them to suffer. And there's no room for people who cross ethnic boundaries in Bosnia today. However, youth did a flirt. And, um, and they, however, <laughs> what was interesting to me that sometimes they articulated a one month limit to flirtation. So in the bathroom, there were especially two students that I kind of followed. And in this article, I, write about them a little bit more, um, that constantly flirted in the bathroom. But when I interviewed the girl and asked why, you know, if she was going to go out with, um, with the boy, uh, she said only up to a month. And I asked why. And she said, well, if we become serious, we would have to get engaged. If we get engaged, we have to tell everyone, we have to tell our parents, and then we'll have our children and they will not do, know what to do with our children. We, they, the children will not know where they belong. They might not know which religion they are. We will not, if we have a son, they will not know if we should circumcise the son or not. And, the children will be lost and they will be, become um, drug addicts. And to me, that was an amazing two minutes of conversation. 
they, they all laughed after that. There were three of us and she's telling me the story. Her friend is listening. And then they all start laughing. And something was released in that laughter, some tension, something that we couldn't really talk about with words because she also understood that there was a huge leap between dating somebody in the bathroom and having a child who is a drug addict. But it shows you, you know, how ethnicized this space has become that these kinds of connections and predictions could be made. So she left me speechless for a while. I really didn't expect that. But she also made sense to me, given it, because sometimes I, when I tell this story to my students here at Syracuse University, when I teach classes in the Balkans, they say, oh, my God, that's horrible. How can they think like that? But when you contextualize it in these 20 years of constant ethnicization and discouragement, not only from the local people, but also, you know, Bosnians are politically discouraged to cross ethnic boundaries. You're, you're supposed to be an ethnic political subject. You're supposed to vote for your ethnic party. That's how the model is made. There's a lot of discouragement for building coalitions, even politically. So it's not only about some certain kind of, you know, backwards culture that does it. it this is the product of modern politics. This is not the product of some kind, you know, some kind of backwards cultural belief, which people sometimes assume. So once they understand this ethnicization, division, non-democratic, seemingly non-democratic type of behavior is the product of the very democratization process itself. And that's why this is so troubling. And this is not some old ethnic hatred speaking for these youth. This was a modern war uh, around modern issues. And this is the product of that and product of legitimization and institutionalization of ethnicity that was done through the peace-building process. Yeah, it's it's very sad on the one hand that this student could potentially see herself, you know, marrying this other student and even having children with them. But then on the other hand, there's this very immediate pragmatic concern about, well, where would we live? Where would we go? And when you were talking about the student's you know, sort of struggling to even have relationships. The One of the main obstacles was if you were to leave the bathroom, where would you go? If you pick a cafe, you have to pick a cafe that's on either side of the city. And then again, it's political. If you go to someone's house that's on the other side, you might have to explain to your parents or explain to other people why you were there. So yeah, there's really just no space for them to, to intermingle. And, and um, yes, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Uh, and I do have to say that they, there's there are young people who still defy, and not so young, uh, who defy these rules and still push against all this. And regardless of um, all the obstacles, which are real, you know, they might come to me and say, how can you say that? We, we actually believe that uh, mixing is possible and should be encouraged. But at the same time, the people I talk to um, – all majority of them do recognize that yes, it's possible, and some of them do it. But these uh, seemingly small uh, obstacles in space um, are not, as you mentioned, they're not that small. They're very political, and every uh, you know uh, choice of a bar uh, is a is a polit- almost a political choice. So um, I, I do think that 
um, even though some people can be defined and say we don't care, you know, we 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 will just date whoever we want. Um, reality is that the obstacles are real, and I explain in the book that, you know, sometimes the obstacles are such that when the baby is born, it couldn't be written in the books because there was no space for that kind of. That kind, I'm using quotation marks, you cannot see me, but that kind of a child, right? Where, what kind, where do you, what's the, how do you classify something that, um, uh, that, um, resists an easy classification? And I, and I think in that space, there is hope and there is slippage and there is all sorts of stuff that happens, but there's also a lot of, um, exhaustion and emotional and social work that goes into navigating this all the time. Mm-hmm. Trying not to be erased. I mean, even, the way we have to talk about it and say the Bosniak students and the Croat students, but of course, many of these students probably do come from what we would now call mixed marriages, and they're not necessarily pure ethnic subjects, but yes, it, it depends what classroom they go into, and then that's what they get referred to. Correct, and um, I, I, I feel myself oftentimes constrained you know, I, I myself constrained by these categories and, and I feel every time I have to say, because people will ask me even today, people who know a little bit about the region, they would say, oh, you're from Bosnia. So which one are you? And I never, I'm always uncomfortable with that question because whatever I answer, I feel I'm, I'm kind of betraying something. And I, I really dislike uh, the order that propels me to feel that way. Not only what, you know, to, to say certain things, but also, so this space of Bosnian-ness is empty. It's not good enough. You have to also qualify yourself as Bosnian something. And for many people, that's extremely frustrating. So in the book, I say, I'm also extremely uncomfortable talking about Bosniaks um, because within that, or Croats or, or Serbs, because within these categories, there's so much internal heterogeneity and not everyone who is who sees them or identifies with that group uh, agrees with what maybe the group's leadership um, is recommending to be done, and people openly say that. But at the same time, the reason why I do use it in the book is not only because my informants use it a lot, but also to underlie that how these ideas, these contingent things around identity, become solidified through international policy making how the only way you can become visible is if you say, well, I'm a Bosniak and thus somehow then you become understood. Then they know how to engage with you. And I think this is partially why um, the process of peace building and reconciliation and and reunification is reproducing segregation. Yeah, you have one, I think it's a whole chapter maybe even about uh, sort of these invisible citizens that are created by the ethnic logic of the state. And then you talk about uh, narod, which is a very, very ambiguous term that can be used to, uh, it can be used to refer to an ethnic group. It can be used to refer to people in general. Um, I, I loved your discussion of, of narod, and I think you really did some interesting things with it. I'd love if you could explain to the listeners what, what is narod. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. I don't know if anyone um, can answer that in such a short time. And that's why I spent pages and pages trying to deal with Narod. So um, in Narod uh, refers simultaneously, and that's why it's amazingly beautiful and complicated and troubling, to uh, now an ethnic, ethno-national belonging. And that's how many of my students talked about it. And they would talk about Croat. 
narod or Serbian narod or Bosniak narod. Oftentimes, when they would say these things, they did not necessarily overlap with republics with the same name. So Krat narod extended historically and geographically, you know, deep into history, but also geographically from Croatia all the way to Tunisia Mostar, which was kind of the brink of Croat, uh, the idea of Croat, Narod, and, and homeland. And the same with the Serbian, um, youth, with the Bosnian Serb youth who saw themselves as belonging to the Serb Narod, which extends from, um, you know, parts of Herzegovina and Republika Srpska, which is the entity within Bosnia and Herzegovina, all the way into Serbia. And they conceived of themselves as belonging to that Narod. So that was not a surprise to me. What was interesting to me is this um, supra-ethnic, trans-ethnic, non-ethnic almost, maybe I should call it non-ethnic use of narod. So narod literally means people uh, or common folk. And even though people use it mostly to talk about ethnic nationhood or uh, belonging, they often did things with narod that were non-ethnic and that was puzzling, that were puzzling. So for example, I would sometimes, you know, get into very difficult conversations with some of my consultants. And one of them in the book, I talk about uh, an, uh, a bus driver who uh, was driving me after a whole day. We spent uh, skiing with uh, youth from the Croat curriculum. We went skiing with them. Nusrat was a Bosniak driver and I was a Bosnian researcher. And again, I'm really, I'm, I'm getting a goosebumps even when I'm categorizing ourselves as such. But just to make sense of this, I have to, uh, so excuse me for being that kind of, um, you know, that short on that. But, uh, I was, he, I was asking him how he felt, uh, because he was in the army. He was fighting at the very boulevard and he had family members who were injured and killed by the Croat army during the war. And now he was driving his youth. And he told me, well, Azra, it's not, um, it's not normal people's use, not uh, normal people's fault. It's not these children's or your or mine's fault. And politicians are to blame. And I asked him, who are these politicians? And he has said, ours, domestic and international. So what he did with category, category Narod, and he called Narod the regular folk or obitian svet in, in, um, in Bosnian language, he, um, he actually created Narod as that that's apolitical, that's not dirtied by this politics of ethnicization and hatred and division, both international and local, but rather Narod were people just look like you and I who are suffering these, these things. Also, uh, people oftentimes, in order to avoid uh, conflictual situations, when uh, they didn't know for sure what people uh, they were talking to did or where they were during the war, where they didn't know if they suffered or not, if they went abroad and came back, people would use this category of Narod to kind of escape political talk. And they would say, ah, it's not Narod's fault, you know, the, uh, Narod, Narod suffers all the time. So to give, to allow for people to keep their dignity and to keep themselves whole in these conversations um, so they don't become extremely damaging or uncomfortable. So they would avoid politics. And even though some people say that's an avoidance, I think that's a very political strategic move. So for me, that kind of a, a political narrative is metapolitical. Um, also, they talked about narrative as being sometimes wronged, uh, some, somehow wronged by 
economic inequality. And this is one thing in the book that I don't talk about enough. I do in the last chapter when I talk about corruption, but very important thing that is happening with the uh, simultaneously with the war and peace building is that the socialist collective property was uh, transformed overnight by the parliament into state property that was then privatized. And in this process of privatization, man, uh, many of ethno-national leaders and mafia ended up actually stealing, this was a robbery, collective property of Narod, of people. So people often talked about Narod also in a semi-Marxist, neo-Marxist term saying Narod is, are all these people, all these workers who worked so hard during socialist time, times and now they're suffering at the hands of these ethnic leaders who are actually corrupt, uh, corrupt leaders of privatization process. So Narod is lower middle class, people who don't have much, and politicians are to blame. So the people did a lot of critiquing of contemporary politics, a lot of careful avoidance of conflict, a lot of kind of um, reaching out or pulling back with this notion of Narod. So Narod is never, you never know. You never know when people say it, in which way are they using it? And sometimes they're simultaneously, and they say Narod, they're doing both things at once. And it's really hard sometimes to decipher that. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by you know, the, the work, the political and social work that not in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved your point that it, it seems like it's avoiding a more touchy conversation, but and it seems like it's being apolitical, but the act of avoiding it is actually a very political move. It's a very good point. Um, Correct. <laughs> you should, you should have co, um, you know, I wish you co wrote the book with me. <laughs> the next one, we'll collaborate. <laughs> I do have a question for you about uh, sort of the, the title of the book. I mean, we've mentioned emptiness a little bit here and there, but it's a, it's a striking title when you pick it up off the shelf, Citizens of an Empty Nation. And you discuss the the youth in the high school's relationship to the Bosnian state, the uh, Bosnian-Croat students' relationship to the Croatian state, and these sort of forces pulling them in either direction. And I think one of the conclusions of the book is that the, the peace-building process, along with the history of war is creating very frustrated, very resigned, cynical, and detached citizens from the state. Um, and I think that's sort of where this emptiness comes in, but I'd love if you could talk about uh, what it means to have this empty nation, what it means looking forward, especially. Well, I thank you for that question. And I, I struggled with that a lot. And I obviously... Um, but a certain idea of Bosnia in which which I sometimes people when I talk about it, it immediately say or oh, you have this very romantic idea of multicultural uh, Bosnia that's kind of very centralized and unitary state and that I have a political agenda and I don't I really don't I do believe that Bosnia as an idea of these people coexisting for centuries, different people, not only Serbs, Croats, Muslims, and others, but people coming together and sharing all sorts of conflictual histories and sometimes being in, you know, in disagreement because that's what always happens when you have um, difference present, right? People have to negotiate that difference. That that produced a certain kind of territorial understanding of belonging. And I think with this regime of uh, ethnicization, uh, 
uh, ethnicization of everyday life through, for example, schooling, um, as well uh, and, and sp- uh, as well as literal division of territory and people, is producing a state that has that holds very little. It's almost I sometimes talk about it. I don't know if it's a nice metaphor, but uh, like an empty container. It the state that ends up um, being empty in so many ways, and you can literally take that and say, yes, Bosnian state has very little power. Most of the power is delegated to sub-state units, to the federation, to the Republic of Srpska. But I'm meaning, I'm, what I meant more is this kind of idea of attachment and belonging that I, I felt youths were missing. And they're missing it because it's obviously not being produced, because there's no state to produce it. There's no uh, curriculum that's really teaching about belonging to the state, uh, because it's all done by sub-state uh, units that teach about this kind of sub state belongings. Um, but I'm also, I also spend time talking about how corruption and this idea of, uh, and not idea, but experience of unemployment and inability to see beyond Dayton that both ethnicization, segregation, division, and unemployment, because Bosnian state is one of the most expensive states in, per capita in the country. It has more uh, government employees than any other place of, the, of its size. Uh, feeding that requires impossible resources. So there's no way to, to feed such a bureaucracy. I, in another article, I call the state cannibal because it eats its own people. Uh, so this, this state that eats its own people, and, and I'm, I'm not saying it lightly, um, is is emptied of these people who cannot in, who who envision themselves oftentimes, rightly so, uh, as citizens elsewhere. So right now in Bosnia, I'm hibernating. I being a you know a young person, uh, but people sitting there knowing what they're doing today, probably having a coffee with a friend this afternoon, and then they can imagine themselves two years from now in Germany, probably, or in some imagined Europe. And then time in between, there's nothing. There's emptiness of that time. It's just kind of preparing, learning German, getting your um, visa ready or whatever you need. And I, I have an article that talks about that kind of uh, the time of waiting and waiting for the date and certain kind of bodily um, bodily experience that many people are just sitting around, not even lying down or fully sitting, but kind of in between, waiting for that other space. So they're imagining themselves as citizens elsewhere, not necessarily in real Europe, in some imagined Europe, but they're, which means that right now they're hibernating, they're preserving themselves, they're being seemingly, some of them, apolitical, when they actually are being very smartly political, saying, I'm saving my, I don't want to engage with this. Unemployment among youth is a 64%. The place is so corrupt. The only way to get a job is to become a member of a party, usually nationalist party. I don't want to be part of that. I'm withdrawing, actively withdrawing from politics. Sometimes the international community reads that withdrawal is apolitical. I don't think it's apolitical. I think it's very smart and political. So what I sensed that, and I ended the book with that kind of exploration of detachment that's produced both through ethnicization uh, and segregation, uh, as well as through this kind of impossibility of employment. And I would be the happiest person if I were to be wrong. However, very recently I wrote a piece uh, for Current History um, about the fact that youth are leaving in numbers that are up, uh, uh, unprecedented. And not only youth, whole families are leaving, but literally I think 
uh, young people are definitely getting up on the stage. Not everyone, but a, a big, big number of them are leaving in the last two to three years. The, no, the number of people who are leaving, at least the region I live in, in Bosnia is um, skyrocketing. And the government doesn't even want to share the data. They're afraid of what that would recommend, uh, what that would suggest. And um, so there's only a speculation that in the, you know, the 10,000 people uh, recently left the region, uh, primarily for Germany. So the state is not is being literally emptied out of its citizens even though I didn't necessarily think about this literal emptying out, uh, but it looks like um, it is this, this um, not abstract, but this kind of more um, analytical emptiness that I was thinking with is becoming now uh, on the ground, real tangible emptiness because people are leaving so much. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but just so that we don't end on such a sad note, <laughs> I'd like to ask you a final question, which is what are you working on now? <laughs> How do you know it's not going to be sad? Yeah, it's actually I'm I'm super excited about this. Um, I didn't plan. I'm an ethnographer, which means that a lot of what we study doesn't come from the books and from discussions with our colleagues and mentors and from reading theory, but from the ground. And that's why I love anthropology and ethnography. Uh, many of these questions emerge when you're in the field. So when I was in the field in 2015, uh, doing a study about how people care, especially care for elderly in the space of post-socialist and post-war society, when so many people are abroad due to the war and the state is withdrawing, an event took place and I joined the event. The event was um, a protest, a citizen protest against a Russian Bosnian um, uh, a company that was uh, trying to build a dam on the local river called the Una River. And the protest was against the local government's decision to give a concession to this company to build on this river. People took the street in a way in which they, not only the street, the internet, in a way that was unprecedented in this town. Um, and I joined them without much thinking. And for the first time in its post-war history, the gov local government changed the deci decision and withdrew the concession. I wanted to understand what this hydrosocial citizenship, this kind of mobilizing around water, how could it achieve something that no other way of political mobilizing achieved? So right now I'm looking at um, how people come together around water, especially this particular river. And I'm investigating uh, socialist, vernacular, environmental movements around this river. I spent this summer interviewing people about their experience with the river during the war, because that scene, I want to write an article about joys of war, because oftentimes people think war is just horrific and it is, but there is also fun in war, and I want to write about that. I'm writing about tourism, about national park around this river, because I think this this is where the struggle is in the Balkans now. While we are all talking about issues of economics and ethnicity, and they're very important, I think what's happening is that natural resources are becoming uh, the site of extreme interest by international and local companies. And so much of politicking, 
so much of deal making and so much of citizen resistance is happening around rivers and forests. Bosnia is the most forested country in Europe. The Balkans has the biggest uh, freshwater repository in Europe. So Bosnia is emerging as this kind of new site. So I'm creating new maps. They're not only ethnic maps anymore. They're these kind of new maps that have rivers and forests on them. And I'm trying to remap how I think about this country and how people within it are experiencing it today. That's very exciting. And I look forward to to reading your future work. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. So that was Azra Hromadzic talking to us about her new book out from University of Pennsylvania Press at 2015, Citizens of an Empty Nation, Youth and State Making in Post-War Bosnia-Herzegovina. Thank you for listening. <laughs>